We're about ready to start. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're going to start this evening's program with a performance by the Baltimore Labor Chorus, and they're led by Daryl Mock.
That was fabulous. Thank you for lifting my spirits and those of everybody else in the room. Um, I really needed that after last weekend and the debacle in Washington. So um, it feels good to be here. Um, we're extending Women's History Month um, a few weeks beyond March and having this program on April 12th. Um, tonight's program is truly a special one about the history of women in this country. And we're delighted to welcome Betty Garman Robinson, whom you met as part of the chorus. You have a lot of fans. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of friends. I've been here 38 years. <laughs> She's joined here um, on the panel by Judy Richardson. Jean Smith Young. And Dorothy Zelm. These four women made history in the 1960s as members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And their stories are part of this new book, Hands on the Freedom Plow. I have copies over here. I hope you'll buy one and, and get their signatures um, this evening before you leave. Um, they've, um, they and other members of SNCC have recorded their memories in this book. I think there are like 52 mm -hmm. essays in the book. And um, so I'd like to say a special thank you to Betty for organizing this program this evening. Betty is going to introduce the other panelists and tell you a little bit about them. So I'm happy to turn it over to Betty. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we're going to uh, work the program. We're, uh, I'm going to read the bio, our bios so that you have a little bit of background. But, um, and maybe I'll read the bios yeah. first. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, Jean Smith-Young. I'm happy, by the way, to, to welcome my three of my five, of six co-editors to Baltimore. Jean lives in Maryland, but Dottie and, and Judy live in Boston, in Cambridge, and New York. So they've come down for us to do a number of book presentations. I'm really happy that they're here and they can share the, the podium. So Jean, on my right, she's a child psychiatrist practicing in the Washington, D.C. area. She's worked in a number of community-oriented mental health programs to address problems of special populations, including children in foster care, mentally ill youth, and the juvenile justice system. She has also instructed medical residents at Georgetown and Howard Universities, a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Howard University, a member of Howard SNCC affiliate, the Nonviolent Action Group, or NAG, and a published author, Jean Smith-Young, worked as a field organizer for SNCC in southwest Georgia and Mississippi until 1967. And then to Jean's right is Dottie Zellner. Following her five-year stint as a SNCC communications staff member where she worked in Atlanta, Georgia, Danville, Virginia, and Greenwood, Mississippi, Dorothy Zellner spent 17 years in New Orleans. She returned to her hometown, New York, with her two daughters in 1983. She was a longtime staff member of the Center for Constitutional Rights and then worked as an administrator and editor at the City University of New York School of Law. She's featured prominently in a book called, uh, that's titled Going South, Jewish Women in the Civil Rights Movement by Deborah Schultz, and she's a, she appeared in the PBS series The Jewish Americans. She currently works as a foundation consultant and is an activist on Israel-Palestine issues. 
uh, Judy, <laughs> give Donnie a clap for that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, Judy Richardson, on Dottie's right, is, uh, was a staff worker for SNCC for three years in the early 1960s in Cambridge, Maryland, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. She was a founder in 1968 of Drummond Spear Bookstore in Washington, D.C., then the country's largest African-American bookstore, followed by Drummond Spear Press, for which she was the children's editor. In the early 80s, she was Director of Information for the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. She began her film work with Blackside Productions on the Academy Award-nominated 14-hour PBS series Eyes on the Prize. She, She was series associate producer and education director for that series. She also co-produced Blackside's Malcolm X, Make It Plain, and as a senior producer with Northern Light Productions, she produces African-American historical documentaries for TV and museums. These include Scarred Justice, the Orangeburg Massacre, which, by the way, was at the Maryland Film Festival two years ago, uh, for, uh, the Orangeburg Massacre 1968 for PBS, and a two-hour History Channel documentary, Slave Catchers, Slave Resisters, and the videos for the National Park Service's Little Rock Nine Visitor Center. She lectures and conducts teacher workshops on the modern civil rights movement. So my bio, (laughs) uh, uh, I went to college in upstate New York and began by organizing support demonstrations for the, the students who were sitting in in the South. I worked with SNCC as a staff member in the South from 1964 to 1966, and I, did, I continued that Northern support from 1960 to 64. In the 70s, I moved to Baltimore. I got a job in a factory, and that led to a career in public health, starting with occupational health research and ending as the director of an HIV-AIDS study of women at Hopkins School of Public Health. And then in 1997, and I say a little bit about this and what I'm going to say, I returned to community organizing to work for Citizens Planning and Housing Association, CPHA. Um, In 2003, I got an OSI community fellowship, which was to connect organizers across issues and constituencies and to popularize the history of social justice organizing in Baltimore. I'm currently the co-facilitator of the Ella Baker Grassroots Organizing Initiative and a member of the Charm City Labor Force. All right, so the way the program's going to work is Judy is going to open up by telling us a little bit about why we did the book. Telling you a little bit. (laughs) We don't need need to know why we did the book. Uh, It was a long journey, 15-year journey, but she'll tell. And then the other three of us will add a little short comments, and then each of us will give you a little bit of an overview of how we got into the movement and read a little short selection from our piece, and then we want to open up for questions and answers. So turn it over to Judy. Okay, doke. Um, well, as Betty said, we worked on this for 15 years, and when I say we, we are four of the six editors. Uh, the other two are, are Martha Norman Noonan and um, Faith Holsart. Um, three, three African-American, three white. Uh, now, I first saw the book in... Um, just after it had come out, and it was the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, Carter G. Woodson's um, organization. Uh, and it was in Raleigh, North Carolina, at the conference there. And somebody came up to me with a stack of five of them. And it was the first time I had seen the book. She comes up to me and she says, would you sign the book? Because we had known each other from another event. 
And I looked at the book, I took the first one, and I held it. It was the first time that I had seen this book in the 15 years that we had been working on it. I did not want to give it back to her, but I thought that would be rude, you know. Um, and I held it there. I just held it. And um, for there were many points in those 15 years where we really thought it would not happen. There were just so many roadblocks. And a lot of us thought, you know, we'll probably be going to these events on our walkers, you know. <laughs> so it is a, a miraculous to all of us that this book is out and that it is so amazing to us. I mean, the book and the fact that it's out. Now, we didn't know at that point, though, that we would get, um, be getting a full-page glowing review in Essence magazine in February from Charlene Hunter-Gold. Or that Dr. Bernice Regan, who is, of course, one of our contributors, um, would arrange for last month's... Um, yeah, because this is April, last month's full-day event at the Smithsonian Institution, or that the Washington, D.C. premiere of the book um, would be broadcast on C-SPAN Book TV, or that we would be nominated for an NAACP Image Award. We didn't know any of that. We just thought, we're struggling. Yes, hello. Yes, here we go. All right. <laughs> so, um, now, why did, why did we do this, you know, for 15 years and go through all that we went through. Um, first of all, because the so-called, you know, master narrative, the common assumption has us, the women of the movement, as poor little oppressed women. Well, hello, no. I don't think so. So we were some really strong women, and many were leaders in their own right before they ever come into SNCC. Not I, but a lot of the women. So, for example, Diane Nash, who was a contributor to our book, she was a leader of the Nashville movement. And one of the primary reasons that the freedom rides continue after the buses are really bombed and burned in Addison, Alabama. Ruby Dar Smith Robinson is referred to a number of times by the 52 women in this book, comes out of the Atlanta student movement, refuses bail on what was called bail, no jail, a uh, jail, no bail, um, does 30 days of hard time in Rock Hill, South Carolina community protests and then becomes executive secretary in 1966 on a slate with Stokely Carmichael. We have Joyce Ladner, who with her sister, Dory Ladner, were strong student leaders in the Jackson, Mississippi uh, movement. They are mentored by the legendary leaders of the Mississippi movement, Medgar Evers, Clyde Kennard, and Vernon Dahmer. And by the way, all three of those were essentially assassinated. Now, Diane and Joyce, as I mentioned, are among those included in our book. And personally, what you find through here is that many of the women talk about being mentored as much by the men as by the women. Now, the movement scholarship, um, except for some of the newer local movement works, tended to be ex focused exclusively on the men. And even that focus was almost exclu uh, exclusively on Dr. King and maybe a few of those who worked with him. So um, the scholarship tended generally not to include the incredible local movement who were the bulwark of that movement, both as leaders and as troops. And so there are a lot of local women in this, in this book. We also wanted to provide a way for SNCC women to tell their stories without having to go through anyone's filter. So these stories are not as told to or part of someone's academic thesis. These stories are the women speaking for themselves. We also did oral histories with a few women we knew would never take time out of their still busy lives to write their stories down, or who just didn't feel comfortable writing them. So we did oral histories. Um, the, big, the book also gives the lie to common misperceptions about the movement, and others will talk about those. But among them is the fact that the movement only happens when an organization like our organization, SNCC, or like Dr. King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, only when those national organizations come into play or into a town. 
No, what we show in the book through these women's stories is that there are often local, strong local movements and organizations that are in existence before we ever get there. You also see that it's the younger, you know, there's a common misconception that it's the older generation against the younger generation. That's given the lie to also in these pieces. You see strong intergenerational support in our stories. You see the strength of family and community. You see the terror. But you also see the humor that got us through and that held us together. Most important, you see that we as young people, because remember, we didn't always look like this now. We didn't have this gray hair, okay? And so we were the age of some of the young people in this, in this room. We were 16, 17, 18, 19 years old when we were doing what we were doing as we, as we talk about um, in, our, in our book. And so what we hope is that young people will see themselves in these stories and know that they too can be activists today. So let me stop there because Dottie's going to continue. Okay. Um, a few other things about the book, just a few. Uh, we never told any of the women what to write about. Uh, some women start off with the day they were born and they go all the way up through their experience. Others pick one day uh, or one demonstration, uh, whatever was meaningful to them. Uh, in addition to having an interracial group of editors, we decided early on that the majority of authors in this book would be African American uh, because we wanted it to reflect the actual movement that existed. And there have been other group memoirs, if I can use that as a sort of genre term, uh, but there was one that was uh, all white. And there have been sporadic articles and stories written by individual women. But this is the first all-female representative group memoir that has ever been published mm -hmm. since 1960. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I first saw the book at Betty's house, and I also, you know, <laughs> cried. that I, I couldn't believe that it was right there. Now... A couple of themes that come up to me when I was even proofreading the book, I knew about this, but I didn't realize the significance, is the one thread is self-defense. Mm -hmm. And I just want to call your attention to that because the paradigm has usually been reduced to violence versus nonviolence. And this is uh, a more uh, enhanced view of what actually happened, and you will see in this book which I hope that you will read, that many nonviolent people were sheltered by community people who were willing to use arms to defend them. And uh, so it is a kind of ironic contra contradiction. And one of the women who wrote a piece talks about her father sitting under a streetlight with a rifle on his lap protecting a meeting that was going on in a church. And this happened many times under different circumstances, various circumstances. So it is a little more, uh, we need to think about more, uh, more about this and what this meant. It has now dawned on me that perhaps that also kept white violence down and restrained it in some of these communities. Some of the young historians are working on this issue. So you will see that in the book. Um, Another thre a thread, which it seems perfectly obvious, is that there would have been no civil rights movement without the women. Yeah. And the cover of this book illustrates that. Many mass meetings, if you look at the raw footage, you will see uh, an overwhelming majority of women. The women really were the back, uh, Put the book up. were the um, 
the backbone. And finally, one other word to the young people in this room who I think have been victimized by what his, uh, passes for uh, civil rights studies in their, certainly in their elementary schools and their high schools, which has been reduced to one sentence, Dr. King had a dream and Mrs. Park sat down. That's the whole sentence. That's it. And I have asked many young people, I've been speaking on this for 25 years, and they'll say, oh, yes, in my book it was two pages, it was one page, it was three pages. This, the most significant movement, in my opinion, in the United States in the 20th century has been reduced to that. So this is our, uh, history is a strange thing. What happened to me, I can give to you. You can't experience the same way, but it's a gift. It's in your brain. They can take away your iPads. They can take away your iPods. They can't take away what's in here. So we need each other's history. So I'm just going to add two quick things about the book, uh, the process, and then uh, turn it over to us. And since it's... um, a little after seven, we should probably cut our remarks to maybe seven to eight minutes each, okay. and then we'll really have time for a dialogue and questions. And can somebody give us a warning? Yeah, I'll, warning. I'll, I'll do that. Okay. I'll, I'll do that. Um, so one of the issues that came up early on in uh, putting this book together was we submitted it to a publisher, and the publisher said, oh, we love a lot of these stories. In fact, we like ten of them, and we don't want the rest. And we took a stand, which was very typical of the way we would work in SNCC, was that we worked as a collective, and we were going to all 52, we wanted all 52 stories published. Uh, the, 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 that press came back to us uh, several months later and said, okay, okay, we, we, we agree, we like, the, we'll, we like the book enough, we'll take all 52. They ended up not being the press that we went with in the end for uh, other reasons. But uh, it just was an example of the way that we worked together and what our, how, what our clarity was about how we wanted this book to be. So when I saw this book, it was at the uh, Baltimore Book Fair in September, and the Red Emma's folks had, ordered some, had been smart enough to order some advanced copies because the book didn't come out till October 1st. And I saw the book sitting on the table, and I grabbed it, and I hugged it, and I started crying. And Kate from, Kate from Red Emma's, and maybe some of you know her, said, oh, you haven't seen the book? I'm like, no. She said, well, take that copy. That can be yours. And that's the book that Dottie saw at my house because she came down for the big union demonstration the next weekend. So uh, it, was, it was one of those things we never really thought about, the fact that we would be sitting in front of audiences, we would be sharing our stories in the flesh with people, we would be going to colleges. We went to Hood College yesterday in Frederick, we had a really incredible uh, audience, and we're going to Bowie State tomorrow night. So it's been one of those journeys that we could not have predicted and imagined. So, so now we're each going to say a little bit about how we got into the movement and read something from our piece, and then we want to have this question and dialogue. So Judy's going to start. That's right. I'm going to start. Okay. Um, okay. Um, let me just – SNCC changed me, okay? SNCC changed who I was changed who I became, changed what I chose, chose to do with my life, because life is about choices, right? What I chose to do with my life. Now, who I was was a person, young person growing up in Tarrytown, New York. Are there any New Yorkers here? 
Okay, okay, see, Tarrytown, New York is only 45 miles north of, of, the, of New York, right? But you New Yorkers think that we're upstate because anything north of Riverdale, in your mind, is upstate. No, we are 45 minutes north of New York, right? And I, it's the home of the author Washington Irving. So I went to Washington Irving Junior High School, Sleepy Hollow High School, and our football team was the Headless Horseman. Go, Horseman, go. Okay. Now, also in Tarrytown was the plant, and we didn't call it the Fisher Body Plant or the Chevrolet Plant. It was just the plant. And it's where the fathers of everybody I knew, including my own, worked. My father had helped organize the United Auto Workers local, UAW local, in that plant. And he died on the assembly line when I was seven years old. Um, he died of a heart attack. My mother was proud, often told me, proud of the fact that on the day he died, he had five union notices that came in the mail. Now... My mother then becomes a single parent to me and to my sister, Carita, who ends up going to um, Bennington College in Vermont. I end up going um, on a full four-year scholarship to Swarthmore College, a good Quaker college in Pennsylvania. Um, when I get there, I find that there is a Students for Democratic Society, an SDS chapter on campus called SPAC, the Swarthmore Political Action Committee. And... Um, I go to, and for those who don't know, SDS, most of you all I know do know, but for those who don't, SDS was the group of progressive, primarily white students in the Northwest, outside the South, who were organizing around a lot of progressive issues, who were organizing progressively around a lot of issues. So um, I go to the first meeting. I find that they are doing, uh, or, organizing around, um, trying to organize the all-black cafeteria staff at Swarthmore's um, cafeteria that they're doing some organizing in nearby Chester, Pennsylvania, but they're also working with um, the local Cambridge, Maryland movement here on the Eastern Shore with a very strong local movement led by Gloria Richardson, who is also in our book. So they are taking buses down along with other buses from Goucher College, others, and working with this strong local movement. I get on that first bus not because I have any great commitment. It is only because my mother is not there to stop me, okay? <laughs> and I get there... And I find that this is an amazing world that I have just entered into. And so I tell my mother that I want to take off the next semester, which would have been the first semester of my sophomore year, um, just at that semester. I promised her that I've talked to the dean. I, I will keep intact the four-year scholarship. It's okay. She, we can talk about her reaction. I won't go through that now. We don't have enough time. Um, but I will say that that six months becomes three years. Okay. Now, um, the... I'm going to stop there because I'd like to read um, two short pieces from, from my piece. One talks about um, what happens when I first see the national office. I saw the national office of SNCC for the first time in November 1963. It was a teeny rundown office at 8 and a half Raymond Street, a one-block side street off Hunter, now Martin Luther King Boulevard, near the Atlanta University Center. The office was located on the second floor above a beauty shop. It definitely did not fit my image of a national office. Because, see, I'm thinking like Urban League, you know, rugs on the floor stuff. Okay, no, none of that. I was 19 and had gone to Atlanta with Reggie Robinson, SNCC's field secretary in Cambridge, Maryland. From the downstairs glass door of the national office, I saw this large man at the top of the stairs, dressed in overalls, and sweeping the stairs. Now, Reggie saw him, too, then ran up the stairs, and with broad smiles and much hollering, they hugged each other like long-lost brothers. And I thought, whoa, this is truly an egalitarian office, <laughs> since I assumed the man to be the janitor. 
It was only after Reggie called the man's name that I realized this was Jim Foreman, SNCC's larger-than-life executive secretary. There was such joy, warmth, and affection in this moment that I thought, Judy, you haven't just joined an organization, you've joined a family. SNCC really is a band of brothers, and then they would add sisters too, and a circle of trust. And I assumed I'd be in it the rest of my life. Now, I later found out that Foreman often swept up, and not so much to clean the perpetually dirty office, which was good since he wasn't all that good at it. Rather, he was showing us that, as he often said, no job was too lowly for anyone in SNCC to do, and every job was important to sustaining the organization. So Reggie introduced us, and through questioning, Foreman found out that I had taken a semester off from Swarthmore and that I could take shorthand which was kind of like texting, but with symbols, for those who don't know shorthand. Okay. And um, that I could type 90 words a minute. I never made, still do, and I never made it back to, Swar to Cambridge. Um, I became foreman's secretary, which I had no problem with then and didn't now because it gave me a bird's eye view of the organization in a way I would never have had otherwise. Now, second one is a demonstration in Atlanta, which, was, which I subtitled Drop Kick. Now, uh, the Atlanta office was involved in demonstrations to integrate Grady Memorial, the municipal hospital. As I was being carried off to the police van on one such protest, I saw John Lewis, then SNCC's chair, being roughly handled as they arrested him too. So I angrily started kicking to get out of the officer's grip so I could help John, because they had me trussed up, you know, a police officer at my feet and, you know, the hands. In the process, I evidently kicked the policeman who was carrying me in a very vulnerable spot. Now, let me just say, the New York Times article mentions from January 19, 1964, says, Mr. Foreman, because he was on the, the um, demo too, dropped to the sidewalk when the police sought to seize him. He shouted, image of Atlanta, the great Atlanta, as he falls to the concrete. <laughs> Mr. Foreman and others were carried out around the block in the wagon and released. He returned to the scene and was arrested again. Judy Richardson, Mr. Foreman's secretary and a Swarthmore College student from Tarrytown, New York, kicked a policeman in the stomach. Actually, it was a little lower. Um, as he and four others struggled to put her in the paddy wagon. Okay, now, so I get out of jail, and Foreman calls me into his office and asks me whether this report was accurate. And I said I didn't remember which was true. He scolded me, reminding me that we were supposed to be nonviolent and that this kind of negative publicity, because it's really about the negative publicity, because at that point we are tactically nonviolent, could hurt our fundraising efforts. I left his office feeling very hurt by his anger and guilty that I had in some way jeopardized the organization, because understand now, when I get into SNCC, I think I've died and gone to heaven, okay? Now, fast forward real quick. Julian Bond was our narrator for Eyes on the Prize for all 14 hours. And I remember standing there talking to him, and I said, Julian, do you remember that time when, you know, I kicked the cop in, you know, that sensitive place? And um, I said, you know, I wonder whatever happened to him. Now, Julian really does know everybody, black, white, whoever, because he just knows Atlanta, in Atlanta. And so um, he said, yeah, I saw him the other day. And he talks like this now. <laughs> now, I say, <laughs> Because I'm really gold. I said, oh, no, Julian, no. And so he, he, said, he said, no. And he actually knew. He said, no, he's retired. He has X, X, X number of grandchildren. So this is kind of full circle. Okay, let me stop there. Okay.
I'll, I'll cut the, the bio stuff really short. Basically, where I come from is that I'm a, a World War II baby, uh, born and bred in New York, uh, seven years old when the war, World War II ends, coming from a Jewish left-wing family. My father was totally obsessed about the, pro the, pro the progress of the war effort. Uh, it was all too real because as Jews we didn't know what was going to happen in Europe uh, and uh, it could have happened to us. So I remember the blackouts in the windows and I remember this incredible fear and tension and uh, as I said yesterday when I was about eight I discovered a book which had photos of uh, the catastrophe that had happened to the Jews. It was called The Black Book and I threw it away because I was the oldest of three children. I was trying to protect my younger sister and brother, and mm. my parents were very upset. They said, you never throw out a book, <laughs> even this book. And the, the question that I asked him, which is the question that has faced all of us, is where was everybody? Because if everybody had not allowed this, this would not have happened. So being a secular Jew, not at all religious, the lesson that I absorbed was thou shall not stand idly by. And that is the way I feel today. That is the way I felt 50 years ago. And so that when the sit-in movement started, I made it my business to get there. And I was lucky that I was at a stage in my life when I was through with college, I didn't have children and so forth, I did not have the conflict that many of the women in this book describe of bitter, bitter family arguments and discussions and interventions by parents, um, black parents as well as white parents, um, who were dismayed that their daughters were throwing away what for them was a once-in-a-lifetime chance for an education. Uh, in fact, my father was a community dentist, and he unfortunately would brag about me while his poor patients were in the chair with their <laughs> mouths open. <laughs> so I just want to read this one section from the book. Am I okay on time? Yeah, you're okay, okay. on time. Yes. Uh, I start about Jim Foreman, who Judy has already described. A Foreman, a person I just loved. I would have walked through fire for him. Uh, and actually almost did a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Foreman was very, always very keen on history, and he told us at the slightest opportunity, in fact, in tedious detail over and over, you must keep everything, you must file everything, you must write it down, you must keep copies, because this is history, capital H. And he assigned me, I'm, I'm abbreviating a little bit so I can get the whole story in, he assigned me to write a pamphlet about the movement uh, battle that was going on in Danville, Virginia. He also assigned Danny Lyon, a, then a 20-year-old uh, young guy from Chicago, to be the photographer. Uh, Danny Lyon turned out to be one of the leading photographers in the United States with his photos in all over in every, in every photographic museum. In Danville, I participated in a nighttime demonstration of black community people led by ministers at the back of the police station where several movement people were being held from previous demonstrations. After we began to kneel and pray for the release of the prisoners, we were hit from the side by high-pressure water hoses. The water from the hoses could knock you over in a second. At the time, I weighed 106 pounds because I had been mistakenly diagnosed as being diabetic and I was afraid to eat anything. 
Almost immediately, I found myself lying flat on the ground, minus my shoes, which had been washed away by the water. When I tried to get up on my hands and knees, I felt a sharp crack on the side of my head, and I saw starbursts of different colors, like a brilliant fireworks display inside my skull. Until then, I had thought that, quote, seeing stars was just a literary expression. It, it, it isn't, by the way. Um, and uh, over the years, uh, I can't remember the face of this giant cop who hit me, but I do remember something strange about his eyes. His eyes were dead. And these men who, under the guise of, of public order, who beat people senselessly. After all, I was lying there. I obviously had no weapons, no purse. I had been knocked down by the water. I had no shoes. Uh, and beat other people uh, savagely. They, I considered them dead. They were dead people. They had dead eyes. They were dead people. Uh, the next day, Danny took photos of everybody. This went into the pamphlet. After this, Foreman and other SNCC personnel arrived. About 40 local people decided to hold a protest demonstration in front of the city hall, which was this huge granite building in this wretched mill town. I don't know if any of you have ever had, ever had the privilege of being in Danville, Virginia. <laughs> and with a long staircase and an iron railing. And basically the story was that the local people decided they were going to stay there all day, all night, if necessary. We managed about eight hours there. And then they brought the water cannons again. And I was really, uh, this was one of the scariest moments that I had in the movement. The cannons were about at, at that wall, and we were sitting here. And, had, and then they had the nerve, the unmitigated nerve, to deputize every white man around, including probably drunks on the street, derelicts. They were deputized. And what the plan was was to fire the cannons at us, we would all be washed down the steps, and then these gentlemen would beat us half to death. So Foreman realized how dangerous this was, and he distracted, he talked to the police chief, and he motioned us to leave, and which we did, and I always felt that he had saved my life. Then the state, of Virginia, the state of Virginia was preparing to use against this movement in Danville the John Brown Law. I bet you didn't know there was a law called the John Brown Law. <laughs> Passed after the insurrection at Harper's Ferry. This law made it a felony to, quote, incite colored people to acts of war and violence against the white population. <laughs> Foreman told Danny and me that defending us against felony charges if we were indicted would be a needless expense, so we had to go. As directed, when we had to leave, Danny and I took our luggage to a black church on a hillside, and then we climbed out a back window into a pink Cadillac, yes, a pink Cadillac, <laughs> where we lay on the floor of the back seat covered with newspapers to hide, hide us. Uh, and out of fear and tension, I began to laugh uncontrollably, a nervous tick. At the airport, I switched from laughter to tears, thinking of all the people I had left behind. Danny went up to the airline ticket counter and, in a burst of invention, registered me under a nom de guerre, Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I assure you, I could not have looked more different from Joanne Woodward. Along with several other SNCC people, including Bob Zellner, Danny and I were, in fact, indicted under the John Brown Law. Later, Bob and I, then married and with our two children in tow, drove through Virginia many times until the statute of limitations was up in the 1970s. We never stopped for anything, not even gas. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> 
I appreciate very much uh, being in this beautiful library with you. And I, I um, each time we give a talk, I try to kind of, I, I, it's, I try to reorganize what I'm going to say around a particular, th a new, another theme. And I think that's one of the nice things about this book, that you can kind of find that there's a story in here for everybody. There's, there's a theme in here for everybody. <laughs> so the theme that I want to talk about today is the life of the mind, the, the importance of the life of the mind. Mm -hmm. And the way I want to explain it, it, the way it came to me, the way I really got this, was that I uh, basically was in, was in SNCC. But I started off, um, when I, it started to become real to me when I went to Howard University, not far from here. Um, I went there in 1960 and I had a great scholarship and I was, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And the professors there, uh, as, as I'm looking back on it, my memory is that they actually taught us um, humanities uh, as, as, as rebellion. <laughs> uh, I, I understood Socrates to be a, re a rebel. I remember that one of my favorite teachers jumped up on the table. The way, way he introduced himself was to jump up on a table in the, um, in the library and go, the earth moves. <laughs> and that's how I, how I understood who Galileo was. <laughs> and and uh, one of our other favorite professors, uh, Chancellor Williams, uh, just sort of casually one day says, hmm, here, read this. And it was the destruction of black civilization. Mm. So, I mean, it was a wonderful way to get started on this road toward, toward the really understanding the life of the mind. And then when I got to SNCC, the wonderful thing was that you could... It, the reality of that, the, it, what I learned in SNCC was that what I think matters, what I, you think matters, what we think and what we do, no matter if nobody else even knows, understands it, it matters. And so this, that, that learning, that lesson that I got, you know, 50 years ago has stayed with me throughout, throughout my whole life and has, has been wonderful, so, a wonderful friend. So that's my message about the, uh, what you can get from this book. And the story that I want to tell from the book actually goes along with this, this theme of what we think matters. Uh, and I want to give a little background to the story. I want to talk about how I ended up going uh, to Philadelphia, Mississippi in, in the uh, summer of 1964 to work with, uh, to, to take a team in after Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner had been um, missing and ultimately were found dead. And the background to this story is that uh, in the early 60s, um, SNCC had, um, we had been working in southwest uh, Mississippi, and, excuse me, southwest, north, southeast, west, southwest Mississippi, <laughs> and um, uh, Herbert Lee, uh, one, of the, uh, one of our stalwart um, uh, older leaders in the community, had been murdered. And we, we withdrew from that project, and we withdrew thinking that we were hurting more than we were helping. You know, that, that, that it was, um, maybe we maybe weren't, maybe our plans and our thoughts for what uh, should happen in that community, uh, maybe we were wrong. And then later on, see, I wasn't there then. I came in 60, I came in 62, and then I came and stayed in 63. Um, but every, at every, I don't know, every big meeting that I would go to, I, I would hear this story about Herbert Lee, and I would hear the, the position um, became a group position that we would never retreat again. Mm -hmm. And so that story was kind of in the back of the mind, my mind uh, as I was there uh, uh, in um, Oxford uh, getting ready for the summer of 64, uh, Freedom Summer. 
So this goes. Soon after the precinct elections, I'd been working in, um, in Mississippi on the Freedom Democratic Party elections. So soon after the precinct elections in May of 1964, I hitched a ride north to Oxford, Ohio, where a thousand volunteers were to be oriented for the massive Mississippi Summer Project. About the third day of the orientation, I was sitting next to Judy, this very Judy over here, <laughs> in the back of Western College for Women Auditorium. And it was a beautiful place. Like this is a beautiful place. You know, oh, places of learning, they're just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it was medium-sized, just large enough to hold the 200 or so volunteers who had come for this training. And it was beautifully decorated in old, dark wood paneling. Um, but there was something a little off uh, for me at that time because uh, we... SNCC, SNCC was uh, originally a very small group of people, never more than about 200 um, uh, core organizers until that summer of 64. So this is a whole new, new way of working to, to try to in, uh, incorporate 1,000 new people into our lives and try to figure out how we're all going to work together and stay alive together. So we're sit- I'm sitting there trying to figure out, well, what are we doing here and how's it all going to work? Uh, and I um, couldn't really... M- couldn't uh, really wrap my mind around it. So I remember um, sort, of, sort of hooking into Judy, tuning into Judy. And the reason I do that is because we've been together so long. We know each other. I don't even know where we met, but, but we have always been together. And we have a kind of common experience. Uh, we both had, um, uh, were raised by uh, mother, single mothers who, after our fathers had died, but these fathers had left this picture with us, you know, of, of daring, caring, wonderful men. My, my father was a Tuskegee Airman who was killed over Germany uh, just before the war ended. Mm. So uh, we, we have this sort of common history and we kind of think alike about a lot of things, I think. Mm. So, and I like to say that Judy and I both got these two messages. Number one, life is tough and you can't depend on any man to take care of you. <laughs> and two, and you're, uh, you are very much loved but there'll be no pampering around here. <laughs> when I tell this story, my grandson's in the audience. He, this is what my grandson hears, <laughs> that he's going to have to do his homework. Okay? <laughs> so anyway, Judy and I are sitting there, and the room is crowded, and uh, we, but we're kind of not tuned into it until I see that uh, Bob, who's at the front, uh, Bob Moses has come forward to speak. And I always would watch, I always tried to learn from Bob because he was good. So Bob came forward to, um, to explain the, pro- the summer project to the volunteers and to tell them about the dangers that lie ahead. I wasn't listening too closely because after a year in SNCC, I'd kind of gotten used to danger, and I didn't think often about dying. And so instead of thinking about Bob telling the, the volunteers what, you know, what to expect, I was more interested in watching his style, trying to learn how to model after his delivery. He was good, as I said. No matter how determined Bob was about his own point of view, his presentation was the soul of humility. He rarely placed himself center stage, and this day was no different. He stood to the side of the stage, to the left of the audience, talked in a conversational tone so that people even had to strain to hear him, and he paused, making sure that everybody had a chance to speak who wanted to speak. Bob answered every question at length. If you asked him a question, you would get an answer, an extensive (laughs) answer. And he created this real feeling that we were going to stay in that auditorium for as long as it took to reach a common understanding that we'd be able to work together. So sitting next to Judy, and I just uh, relaxed into this mood of kind of mutuality and consensus that Bob could create, when all of a sudden the atmosphere changed. It became electric with tension. Bob was called off stage for a few minutes. 
And when he came back, he was different. He was a different guy. I had never seen him like this. His body was stiff, and it seemed like he was being pushed forward, propelled forward by four staff members, including his wife, Donna. These staff members lined up behind Bob and sort of pushed him. Okay, you got to do it, you got to do it. And Bob announced then, in an unusually hesitant way, that three of our people, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, were missing in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and were feared to be dead. Dead. I had been moving around Mississippi in a cloak of denial, thinking that somehow I, Gene, I'd be taken care of, and I wouldn't get hurt. But now the reality gripped me, and I was scared. I felt Judy next to me. She was scared, too. And I felt the atmosphere in the auditorium. In the stunned silence, the room felt cold and empty, and that was an awful feeling because the best thing about SNCC was this warmth, this feeling of community, of always being connected to each other. But on this day, fear had separated us and broken down the significant relationships by which I, at least, was defined. And Judy, at that moment, seemed to be the only person in the world that I was connected to. So I turned to Judy. I said, Judy, let's sing a song. And Judy says, not me, girl. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this is the, t- the moment that I'm thinking of. I'm sitting, I'm in the back of the auditorium, and there's this awful feeling, of, and, and I feel like I've got to do something. What I do matters. And I don't know where this song came from. I don't know how I, I learned it. But out of nowhere, I started walking down the aisle, and this song came, and it went, I don't know why I have to cry sometime. I don't know why I have to cry sometime. It would be a perfect day, but there's trouble all in my way. I don't know why, but I'll know by and by. And by the time I got to the front of the auditorium, everybody in that auditorium had learned that song, and we were, everybody had started singing with me, and we were, we were back. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I, I remember, many people remember that, same, that day from that time, that uh, that. It brought us back together, and we all were back able to believe that what we do matters. Mm-hmm. So what I did that mattered was that I uh, joined the uh, group that went to uh, start the project in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I was the only woman there. And uh, we actually weren't hurt. I, I, don't know what the, um, I don't know what the white men were thinking at the time, but they backed off of us for that time just after they had murdered Goodwin, Cheney, and Schwerner, and we were able to continue. We were able to set up a project, uh, start a voter registration campaign, and then on Sundays we would play baseball with the Native American people who lived there and who wondered why in the world would anybody come back to this place. All right, so I'm going to try to be pretty short because I really want to, and like half the people in the audience know me, so you can ask me all the questions you want or read my story in the book. But I just want to tell you, I came to the movement this way. I grew up in New uh, New York State. My parents were the first in their families to go to college, and of course that meant that I was going to go to college. My brother and I were going to go to college. Um, but I grew up in a household where there was a lot of racial prejudice and a lot of anti-communism. And I didn't, I don't think I understood the anti-communism part because this was the McCarthy era, but uh, the, the racial prejudice was pretty confusing to me. I had a Mexican godmother who I loved, and my mother called her a dirty wetback and talked about how she spoke with broken English. And Again, that, that, and then the first boyfriend that I had, his father was a truck driver, 
And my father and mother said, well, he wasn't good enough for me. My father had grow, grown up on a farm, mind you. Okay. So it just mm-hmm. shows you where, how people lose their class uh, connection as they mm-hmm. move up in, in the world. Um, so I'm an average good student. I go to Skidmore College in upstate New York. It's an all-white school except for one African-American woman who was in my class, but no, nobody before or after her was there. Um, I got involved with the student organizing on campus at the time, which was, uh, there were a couple of issues. One, there were academic freedom issues, like what could you, uh, what could be taught on campus. There was a loyalty oath issue. Uh, You had to sign a loyalty oath to get a student loan for college. You had to sign an anti-communist oath. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many people, civil libertarians, thought that that oath was uh, was repugnant and we shouldn't have to sign it. we, uh, we, we wanted to rate our professors, and that was something we organized for. We also did a lot of educational uh, forums around uh, apartheid in South Africa, around segregation in the South, and around the African revolutionary movements that were happening at the time. Um, so basically, when the sit-ins happened on February 1st, 1960, we were shocked to see that black students in the south of the U.S. could not sit at lunch counters. And a number of us organized these meetings where we, we had a leaflet that was called the right to eat and let your voice be heard. And we had these meetings and we organized a demonstration at a Woolworths, which was the target of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, we were considered unladylike, the headlines in the newspaper. Well, what happened is we, we went, 200 of us went to a Woolworths on an afternoon, came back, the next, uh, that afternoon, then some of the underclassmen, because we were seniors, right? We were about to get out of there. But the underclassmen said, we got we to do more. We have to do more. So we sent four women every hour down to the Woolworths, mm-hmm. the first four women. That was the plan, anyway. The first four, first four women were arrested by the police, brought back to the office of the president of the college, because that was the day of in loco parentis, where the college stood in mm-hmm. place of your parents. So... So that's what happened. So um, the college president warned us that we we should stop. And then we shifted to where we got Governor Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York, to make a public statement in support of the sit-in students. Um, So that was kind of the beginning. And that was how I got connected to SNCC, et cetera. And um, I know that uh, history deals unexpected hands. So I want to – I'm kind of like Gene. I want to kind of – say something new or slightly different. And so what I want to reflect on tonight is because of the current times and because this, I started saying history deals unexpected hands in early December when we were in New York at a library uh, at NYU. And I don't think that I understood the true impact that would happen within the month because then the Egyptian uprising happened in the month of De- later in the month of December, the Tunisian uprising, and then the Egyptian uprising, and then Wisconsin. So history does deal unexpected hands. And one of the things that I learned back then and we can learn now is that when ordinary people come together to act, they can be a powerful force for justice a powerful, and a, a, a powerful uh, voice for freedom. Um, at that time at Skidmore, I had had certain experiences in my life, probably the racial prejudice, which propelled, and there's some other things that had happened, but probably that propelled me forward and said, okay, I'm going to take a stand. Um, 
Okay, so something else I learned back then that applies to today is that making social change is not magic. It takes passion, love, commitment, and an immense number of person hours, very hard work, strategic planning, thinking, coordination, and this on top of putting forward a political perspective and plan for organizing people and then getting people united behind that plan. Uh, so SNCC, uh, one, I want to just say a few words about SNCC. We started with one staff person in 1960. The staff in the field, as, it, as, as we grew as an organization, the staff in the field were paid $9.64 a week. That was after taxes. Uh, we had a communications department, a research department, a photography staff, along with a program staff that figured out programs. Uh, we ended up building two independent political parties, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the Lowndes County uh, Freedom Organization, an organized labor union, the Mississippi Freedom Labor Union, and several agricultural co-ops. By spring of 1963, there were 31 field staff in southwest Georgia and Mississippi together. And then during the summer of 64, that was when we built one of the independent political parties, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. We opened freedom schools and community centers across the state, and that was with the 1,000 people that Jean talked about who came to the orientation and became the summer volunteers. By the fall of 1964, the staff approached 200. But how did we raise a budget for this? Mm -hmm. That is the question. So I want to, I, I would read something from my piece, but I won't do that, but um, because I think I, wanna, I want us to save time for questions. But one of the things we did was we built this national network called Friends of SNCC, mm -hmm. and we raised money from people like yourselves, probably some of you gave money to SNCC <laughs> through Friends of SNCC. We raised money, we, we built a support network all across the north where people would call the jails if somebody was arrested, people would call the attorney general if uh, the fed a federal law was being violated, call their congressman, call their local newspaper. So we had this incredible communications support network. Um, we did not have foundation grants. And I think the nonprofit industrial complex, which is <laughs> the, uh, a term that's been given by, there's actually a book called the nonprofit non industrial complex. In other words, the foundations have placed expectations on how we organize today. So SNCC was not a 501c3. We had next to no resources, and yet the power of the desire for freedom and liberty propelled us forward. In fact, if you paid attention to the Wisconsin organizing, people started out with not a lot of money, but people from all over the world were calling that pizza place and, and putting uh, pizzas on their credit card to go feed the demonstrators. I mean, there was just an overwhelming outpouring of support. So that was the kind of environment we, we existed in. Uh, and I know that young people fighting in the Middle East do not have foundation grants. So SNCC <laughs> <laughs> survived because the local communities that we worked in supported us, and then we built this powerful national fundraising organization. So, um, and I'm, I'm not going to read the part from my piece, because, uh, so I, I just want to read this part. I very much played a support role in SNCC. You won't find stories of any special bravery in my piece in the book, although there are many heroic stories in the book. But what I know about organizing today was kindled back in those days. The ideas and passion of those times live inside of me. Both work on the book and reconnecting with SNCC friends and other organizers across the country meant I revisited the freedom struggle. 
Through the years I was raising my daughters, and one of my daughters is here and my grandchildren are here. One of, through the years I was raising my daughters. There's my granddaughter right there. Stand up, Mackenzie. Stand up. Mackenzie, stand up. That's my granddaughter. And my grandson and daughter are in the back. Um, through the years I was raising my daughters, there was, I was distant from these ideas, but you know that something is just underneath the surface. So in 1997, a few years after we started work on the book, I left my Hopkins job at the School of Public Health and I returned to the world of organizing. I kept telling my friends and family that a new movement was coming. I knew only that history is cyclical and that doing political education and leadership development, especially in impacted communities, was important work for the times. Movements need hundreds of thousands of participants, especially they need conscious organizers to develop the strategy for action, to do the research, the messaging, the communication, and to organize constituencies. Movements are most powerfully led by the people impacted, the people for whom the system stops working, which, which is when movements happen, when large numbers of people the system is not working for large numbers of people, then you begin to see a social movement that really uh, forces a significant change. And I believe this is one of those times. Um, So history has dealt us an unexpected hand. Uh, Racial, religious, gender, and class oppressions have intensified, and we're seeing the overt racism of the Southern segregationists recreated in the form of the Tea Party. Mm And the anti-union policies of the right have surfaced openly, the best example of which is the Wisconsin governor. A new social movement is on the horizon. The system is not working for people. And this time we need powerful, new, what I call transformative organizing, and that's a conversation we could have. I encourage all of you to find your voice and your place in these times, this new movement for human rights and justice. And now we'll take some. Uh, Kennedy, like Johnson, lived in fear of the Southern Democrats. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, I, when I first started in SNCC, uh, I would sit there typing like this, and people would come in telling their stories, and I would type verbatim, their verbatim reports, because Foreman wanted to use them for fundraising, but he also wanted to send them to Washington. And the story was always the same. We took so-and-so to register to vote. Uh, They got beaten up. We were arrested and blah, blah. And we would say, you must do something. You must do something. Actually, there was a law on the books then from 1957 that registrars could be be, uh, penalized if they didn't follow through. Kennedy never uh, uh, enforced that law. And it was only with severe, unremitting pressure that the Kennedys uh, reluctantly got dragged in to the Freedom Rides and other issues like that. Yeah, I don't think we expected them to, to protect us. The FBI, the Southern FBI, was riddled with segregationists. And they, uh, they consorted with the White Citizens Council and the Klan. And in fact, we, we practi- when, we, when somebody would be arrested, we called the FBI because we knew that was part of the protocol, but we knew that the Southern FBI offices were not, 
were not going to protect us. And then we called Washington. So it was a, it was a struggle, and I think everybody can add. It was a process that evolved over time in terms of insisting and demanding that the, go the government protect us. Yeah, I think we, we also should just remember that um, most of the F first of all, there was no FBI office in Mississippi until the 1,000 primarily white students come into Mississippi that summer of 64. There were no Mississippi offices. If you had something happening in the northern part of the state, you went to Memphis FBI office. If it was the southern part of the state, you went to the New Orleans office. It is only when the sons and daughters of you know some powerful white people and other folks from white America are then in jeopardy that they are um, the federal government is forced to then put in um, a Jackson office. Now, some of us were on what was called the Watts line, the Wide Area Telephone Service, uh, WATS, and that was like an 800 number. And as Betty said, it was pro forma. You you had to at least. Um, call the FBI office when somebody was killed or somebody was beaten or, or a church was, were burned, uh, was burned um, that was having a mass meeting. And when you call that FBI office, first of all, you got an FBI agent who most times was a former sheriff in one of those racist white communities. And when you called them, you got absolute hostility. So, um, you know, you had to, as a six, 17, 18, 19-year-old, you had to bring to your... I mean, I'm coming up from Tarrytown, which is, you know, Mr. Policeman is my friend, you know. And so um, I have to get into another frame of mind, which says, you will listen to me. And to get that power in your voice as an, as an 18 or 19-year-old. And remember, when this, those three particular civil rights workers, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, come up missing, the FBI, FBI um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, after whom, you know, the FBI office is named in Washington, he, his statement was... Uh, he implied that we, the movement, were just keeping them hidden. And he says, um, this was just done by these three fellas, those three, to inflame the situation. It took everything we had, including Mickey Schwerner's wife, Rita Schwerner, going up, and some of you may talk about what it took to get them to act. Yeah. Well, I just want to add two, two very brief things. There's a movie that plays all the time. You've seen it, Mississippi Burning, right? A lie from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And the FBI did not lead anything, did not initiate anything. We had to drag them kicking and screaming. And there was no black agent. And there was no black agent. There was actually, no, the two, there was one black agent in the, whole, in the FBI at that time who was Hoover's chauffeur. Oh, yeah. And he called him an agent. Um, but they were also stupid. Okay, and uh, what happened to me in 1962, long before Mississippi, when I lived in Atlanta, uh, one night the phone rang around nine o'clock, and uh, this voice says, uh, "Miss Miller," and I said yes, and he said, "I'm Agent Nicholas of the FBI." I said yes. He said, "Where is Dr. King?" And I said, "Where is Dr. King?" <laughs> What do you mean? He said, we followed him to the airport, and then we lost him. <laughs> and, and do you know where he is? I said, believe me, I have no idea of where he is. And I told that to Julian the next day. I mean, we probably laughed for weeks over that. But they, they, in addition to being racist, they were stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this young lady in the front, Judy, Actually, if you can talk a lot, so she, she doesn't have to keep rowing them back and forth. If you can talk loudly enough. It's 
Since you all came from different colleges, I wonder... Bring it out. Talk loud. Since you all came from different colleges, I wonder where SNCC originally originated from. Yeah, since we all came from different colleges, where did it originate? See, there were a lot of local student movements, and that's a really good question. A lot of student movements. So, for example, Diane Nash and the Nashville Student Movement. You've got Diane Nash, you've got Marion Barry coming out of that, you've got um, uh, Reverend Lawson coming out of that. They're not, are not connected at that point. So, oh, you want colleges? You want the names of colleges? I didn't think that's actually what she was asking. She's trying to figure out how to, we're all coming from different places. How do we become a, a unit? So they're coming out of Nashville Student Movement, which is Fisk um, and, and, and the Nashville students. You've got Atlanta University Center. So that's Spellman and Morehouse and Clark and Atlanta University. They're com Julian Bond is coming out of that. You've got people coming out of all these centers. And the wonderful Miss Baker that we talk about, who is the who gives us the grounding for a lot of the ways that we thought about grassroots organizing, she says she at that point is the temporary executive secretary at Dr. King's organization, the Southern um, Christian Leadership Conference. And he, she says, you know, we need to bring some of these young people together. Because in 1960, when those first four students sit down in Greensboro, North Carolina, that's when it mushrooms primarily throughout the black colleges. But we're not an organization yet. And so she says to Dr. King, we need to get these young people together so they can start coordinating some of their movements. She gets about $750 from Dr. King, and they bring all of them to her alma mater, which is Shaw College in Raleigh, North Carolina. And they all come. Julian talks about, you know, four or five people getting into the VW bug and running up to Atlanta, you know. Uh, Diane Esch and some of those folks come down from, from, from Nashville. And that's when they first decide, well, maybe we need to form an organization. And they have two meetings and then decide that that temporary committee is going to become a permanent student nonviolent coordinating committee. But, and then oh. uh, there were other, organiza other, non other organizations, student organizations. Oh. They were not Southern-based and they were not black. Like uh, my group was from Howard, and that was called the Nonviolent Action Group. And it, uh, we, uh, many of the leaders, including Stoley Carmichael, came from NAG. And then there were a lot of uh, students who came from the uh, University of Michigan, from the Northern White uh, Universities, and uh, were critical, uh, essential members of the group. Mm, somebody over here with the gay lay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, passing down the microphone. Quick, quick, quick. <laughs> I just would like to ask um, to to any of y'all. Um, Danville had a lot to do with a lot of the wars. I have relatives in Danville, mm -hmm. so I'm a Virginia person. So, But I wanted to ask, because y'all were college students, how did the college administration deal with y'all as far as y'all scholarships and things like that? Because I sat on Towson State University campus a lot myself in the 70s. So had, were y'all thrown off campus? Were y'all protected? Um, well, it depends on where you were. Howard was wonderful. Howard was very supportive of, uh, of the, the, me, for sure, and the people who, were, um, who joined SNCC from, from NAG. Uh, they, uh, NAG actually had a kind of um, dual role of being uh, supportive, supporting SNCC, but also uh, of d pushing for the intellectual life intellectual life on the campus. Um, I remember that once we, well, I can go, I go into details, but so Howard was very good. 
Uh, it, it depends on where you were, because I think the students in some of the southern universities had more trouble. Yes. I remember when we were campus traveling, they ran us off. The football team ran us off of Tuskegee's campus. Oh, yeah. And, and that was true of Fisk. No, they were not all that sympathetic. And, and there are some stories in the book where, where students, you'll find students were expelled from Albany State College, mm-hmm. for example, from Jackson State College, for example, from uh, there's the, the lead story in the book by Zahara Simmons. She was a Spelman College student, and her parents and the university administration got together to t- try to pre- prevent her from joining SNCC during the summer of 1964. But those stories are in the book, and so you'll see how the colleges. And it also depended upon the parents and how important this college education was to the parents. Many of many of the women in the book were first generation college. Students, mm-hmm. and so that was another dimension that, that you had going on. That, or and they were on scholarship, but they became activists and 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 stood up for, you know, stood up to join the movement. I wanted to know if there was just one main person who um, founded SNCC, or were there many? Was it like a certain founder or something? Yeah, whether it was one person or whether there were many people who founded it. Um, I think it's part of what I I was talking about in terms of all of those young people coming together from the colleges. They together, all of these young people who, you know, coming out of these campuses, they found it. Somebody. So let me maybe mm-hmm. uh, I can expand that a little bit. Mm-hmm. SNCC was a very democratic uh, organization. Mm-hmm. You really uh, anything you were big enough to do, you could do. Mm-hmm. And so if you showed up and you were willing to work and you're willing to uh, to and you could handle the the, the danger. You could you you were in, so uh, it was not a it, it was not a hierarchical you know one person being in charge. We had people had different responsibilities, but it was a very democratic uh, way of working. And uh, so so it couldn't have been one person. Miss mm-hmm. uh, Baker, I'll just add another thing about Miss Baker. She believed very strongly in something called group centered leadership. Mm-hmm. Now we did have people who were executive secretary and chairman and that kind of thing. But so many of our decisions were made in these enormous meetings uh, uh, that went on and on and on for hours, debate, discussion, for days, right? But but it was was a pretty exciting time. I'm uh, finding all these stories fascinating. Tell me louder, louder, please. please. Uh, I'm finding all these stories fascinating, and um, I'm wondering if anyone here is currently involved in social issues, uh, justice issues, and uh, specifically to the woman on the end, I've forgotten your name. Betty. Um, uh, I want to talk about a situation right now. I, I've been involved in um, uh, s- sort of c- citizens and poverty issues and displaced citizens issues, and currently right now at a city-run shelter just a few blocks from here, uh oh! Um, an officer just walked in the room. Okay, now he's leaving. All right. Well, it doesn't um, matter even if he so stays. I will continue. Um, yeah. Um, the um, uh, one of the men walked up and, and said to the women, and and of course, please, um, any writers in the room, can you please just refer to me as a person? Uh, um, oh, here he comes again. Uh, you uh, could just uh, ask your question. That would be okay. fine. Um, he, he told the ladies that they were shutting down the women's bathroom. Apparently, one of them was clogged. One of the other ones was clogged. Um, so the women have, have no bathrooms right now. We're talking about the, the 
probably the worst shelter in the city right now. And um, there are no bathrooms. And they, these women are, like, disabled. And some, you know, have criminal backgrounds. Some do not. Most of them are black. Um, Let me just ask, because uh, I think can, Betty can, might can be I, able to comment can, on that. If, yeah, you, if she can, can I, just can comment on it. Can I finish a, a little? Um, okay, there so we go. They're, so they're afraid to speak up uh, about these issues. But since um, Sunday... Um, since Sunday morning, and as of this morning, it has not been fixed. They have talked. They have not talked about fixing it. Um, uh, I um, am only going to be here till the end of the month, um, and so um, you you can just refer to me as the wandering Taoist. Okay, uh, and I'm ma'am, if you could let another... her just respond, that yes. would be yeah. great. All I, I what I should do is take your name yeah. and number at the uh-huh. end. Yes. Uh, because and the key thing here is that people have got to self-organize. People have got to figure out. Yes. I mean, and these, there is these are some women who are afraid to speak. No, for I know uh, what I'm saying, but been, I, I'll you know? get your number at the end, and we, we'll talk more. But uh, the, okay. I think the point okay. is that we all have to. We are the ones that we've been waiting for, type yes. of thing, and which is another "Sweet Honey in the Rock" song. So we can't look externally; we have to figure yes. it out. But I understand what you're saying. But I think we should give the microphone to yes. somebody else so that okay. we don't have much more time. So. Mm-hmm. so there's a little girl over there. She's actually had her hand up for a while, yes. My granddaughter girl. (laughs) Is there anything we can do to, like, the young kids to start a new movement? You should. Well, since it's your granddaughter. That's right. The, the key thing is to think about what, what's happening in your life that needs to be changed. And even if you start at your school, like some students don't have toilet paper in their bathrooms, and so they go to the principal and they say, we need toilet paper in our bathrooms, and that's the start. But then, of course, there are, other, there are bigger things, and there are a lot of people who are doing things, and you know, we can certainly talk about how you can participate in that. But I like your spirit. (laughs) Okay, one right here. Uh, At the time you all were at your most active, I just arrived at Morgan State University, then college here, and we had a terrible time trying to explain SNCC to the students who were trying to opt for a way to go south and do something. And Stokely Carmichael showed up. Uh, No, I'm sorry, Rap Brown showed up with his classic beret shades and so on. And he carried a briefcase up on stage with 2,000 Morgan students watching and listening. And he said, we must take up arms speaking for SNCC and when a student challenged him and said something smart like where do we get the arms he patted his briefcase as though it's already there and the whole assembly this was 1600 students who were waiting for the word to do something for SNCC or not and the sense in this region was SNCC was well, as someone then put it, 
not students, not nonviolent, not coordinated, and not a committee. And uh, Martin Luther King probably rallied the most people, or in Baltimore anyway, to, to go down south. I was wondering whether you all, among yourselves, had faced that, that is, whether there was a challenge to your group from within, not external enemies, but within. I can make a general statement that there, uh, in the mid-60s, there were a lot of changes. Uh, and SNCC evolved uh, different uh, factions or different groups of people, uh, different philosophies sort of flowered and, and moved and went in different directions. And so th that's my way of explaining it, that uh, people, one rapid was part of one group, and then another group that flowered totally different was the women's movement. Another group was the anti-war. A lot of things changed around the mid-60s. Mm -hmm. And rap doesn't come in until 67. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm back at school on the Columbia now then. But I will say, you know, it's important to understand why um, there were folks who were saying you need to go into self-defense. Um, you know, when we, when we went to Atlantic City in 1964, and the three are still missing, and then they finally get you know, found in an earthen dam having been put there by the sheriff and deputy sheriff. Um, we're struggling against um, an all-white Democratic Party out of Mississippi. We think we're getting help from the Democratic Party national. When we go to Atlantic City, we have all the votes lined up. We think everything's going to be copacetic. We get there, and we find that Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey are working against us, as are the United Auto Workers, my, my father's union. right? We find that politics is no longer about morality, it's about power. So when we go into Lowndes County, we're building an all-black political party. And we're doing it because the traditional Democratic Party has shut, shut us off. It's about power, it ain't about morality. So there, just to understand why some people, it's, yeah, it's very complex. Um, I just want to say thank you all, ladies, for sharing your stories. I would just like to um, ask you, did you experience as women any misogyny or sexism in terms of asserting yourselves, um, in terms of your intelligence, in terms of your ideas, and being listened to within the movement at that time? Um, being respected and being valued and being listened to. And also to um, my white sister there, I often notice that when people of color are asserting themselves, that sometimes uh, a white individual is heeded or listened to more than a person of color, and whether or not you might have experienced that. If you could just share with me. Gee, you should go yeah. first. Yeah. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I... I uh, uh, whenever I get a chance, what I say is that women were not oppressed or mistreated or mis or, or ignored or anything in SNCC. That we could do anything we were big enough to do. That's my general answer. Um, I think the reason was that everyone was needed. Well, again, it has something to do with the time frame you're talking about. Uh, in the early 60s, um, there, there weren't, they're not, you, could, you knew everybody who was willing to do this. Anybody who was willing to come to the uh, Mississippi Delta and and be shot at and uh, be put in jail, they're welcome. Yeah, so if, if there just wasn't that issue about you know we don't want you. Now it's later on, and uh, I'll say after '65, things did get kind of I'll say um, 
categorized. People got more into, or, uh, there were more power issues and more uh, ways that people got set aside. But in, in our, our, what I consider our best time, and at the time that I identify with, that was not an issue. And that I, I know that I was always supported any job I wanted to do, anywhere, anything I wanted to try. The, the trick was to get the car keys from the guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you could get the car keys from them, you could go and do it and work wherever you wanted to work. Um, I have, uh, an, uh, I guess, a slightly different take on this. Uh, the country in the early 60s was 100% sexist. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, I understand there is a program called Mad, Mad Men, mm-hmm. which I've never seen. I have no intention of seeing it, but I understand <laughs> it's all about sexism in, in the 50s, mm-hmm. actually. And uh, the country was intensely uh, sexist. I actually think that the virtue of SNCC was that it was the least sexist. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say to you, sir, that every single woman has yes. every right that every man had. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, compared to the other civil rights organizations, we were far ahead, far ahead. And just to tell you about one woman, it was Ruby Doris Smith Robinson, who Judy referred to, she ended up, uh, I used to watch her in the office. I worked with her. And she kept track of the money. And she kept track of where everybody was. And if a man called up and said, uh-oh, Ruby Doris is calling me, that he knew he was in hot water. <laughs> and she had an, a lot of power in the organization. And she had power, uh, I would say, even independently as a woman. Uh, she wasn't considered uh, uh, a token woman. Uh-huh. She was considered a person who was, she was about five foot two, and she had actually lifted rocks for a month from one side of the road to the other side when she was on the chain gang. Uh, so we had several women like that. We had women who were project directors in various parts of Alabama and Mississippi. This was at a time when the other civil rights organizations did not. The other thing is, in retrospect, some of what we could do, I think, has been mischaracterized by the women's movement itself as uh, lowly work. And when I first met Jim Foreman, he said, hi, how are you? Can you type? Now, this became the archetypal statement of sexism. But it wasn't, because he needed someone who could type. And fortunately, I could. There were a lot of women who couldn't, but I could. And then he said, I said to him later, not only can I type, I can write. Oh, great. I'll put you writing with, with uh, Julian Bond. So I, I would have to say this was in a context of sexism, but compared to what everybody else was doing and acting, SNCC was far head and shoulders above. So um, I'll piggyback on what Dottie said just to compare. I was in SDS before I came to SNCC, and I was much more valued and accepted for who I was and what I could do in SNCC than I was in SDS was the Students for Democratic Society, which was an all-white organization. Uh, I, wanna, I do want to speak to mm-hmm. your, um, the, the question you had about white people. SNCC was a black-led organization, and there were, there were other limits on what white people could do. For example, interracial groups were not looked upon favorably in the South. So often, uh, either the white person or the African-American person rode on the 
uh, floor of the back, the back floor of the car with a blanket over them so that we would be not exposing ourselves to the authorities. But so white people w- were limited in the amount of canvassing that we could do in the backwoods and the, in the rural areas, although some white people did that. But um, also the le- because the leadership of SNCC was African American, it, I know what you're talking about. I've seen that in Baltimore a lot, is where, the white, where a white person... And it happens with women, too, where a, a woman will say something and people will not hear it, and then a man says it, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I've seen that happen with whites and African Americans, especially in the last 20 so years in Baltimore. But, but in SNCC, because it was black-led and it was clearly a, an African American movement... Uh, and maybe there were, uh, there may have been times where the white volunteers were deferred to, and if the white volunteer did not understand uh, something about racism and how oppression worked, they could be sucked into kind of being the, you know, the leader or whatever. But that was something that needed to be countered, you know. But uh, but again, I think because SNCC was a black-led organization... majority black. It was majority black and and black-led, and so the spokespeople and the the, uh, people that were were doing most of the organizing were African-American. Could I I add something else? Of course. You'll see when you read this book that some of the white women, a few of the white women, were frustrated. Uh, They came down from the north, they had certain skills, and they just assumed they could go out on the field, they could do this, they could do that. Actually, they couldn't, and they were prevented from doing that. And the reason is that if I walked down the street with you, sir, in Mississippi in 1963, you would be killed. Mm -hmm. Okay, I might be killed also, but you would definitely be killed. Mm -hmm. So we, and, and we adhere to those rules, and you'll see in the book, uh, if people said, I, I mean, to just take me, could I go out in the field? I have spent 20 years in the South, and I just would open my mouth, and people would say, where are you from New York? <laughs> I'd say, hello, and they'd say, okay, Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how was I going to go down these roads and organize anybody, uh, and especially in an interracial group? Uh, I never felt frustrated because I knew there were certain limitations and I was so happy and thrilled and have never, I thought SNCC would last forever, I would be in SNCC forever. I had found my vocation, that's why I called that my piece. I was so happy and thrilled to be there and it seemed logical to me. We stood everything on its head. The white people took leadership from the black people as opposed to the general society. And we learned that somebody like Mrs. Hamer, who had a third grade or fifth grade education, was brilliant. We learned that education and intelligence is not synonymous. So we learned all of those things and turned them on their heads. Let's take one last question, okay? Oh, there's one right there. Um, I appreciated hearing Jean's story about a musical experience that was transformative, and I'm wondering if you can recollect more experiences. I'm, I'm curious, was music something that really came from the people, or was it something where Pete Seeger would show up and then said, I'd love to hear more about the music yeah, you got, you got of the movement. Over the <laughs> Good question, though. Good question. Well, Pete Seeger's a very nice man. Okay. Now, um... The, it, it's, it's, it's everywhere. The music, well, first of all, the music that we sing, it's all, it's, it's black religious music. 
uh, it's it's gospel turned it's gospel translated into you know instead of saying um, hands on the gospel plow you say hands on the freedom plow so it's the same it's absolutely based in the black musical tradition which in which involves um, trying to get the best word. It's participatory music. So you don't just listen to freedom songs. You don't listen to black gospel songs. You participate in that music. And then the music allows you to, I think it's transcendent. I think that music, you can sing when you can't talk. And you can, you can send messages by music that you can't send by, by words. So it was absolutely not that someone came and taught a songs. And I think Pete Seeger was very glad to learn some of our songs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of the pieces in the book speak to the importance of music uh, to overcome danger, to overcome fear, to uh, express the spirit of the movement, and, and so yeah, it comes through very loud and clear. Okay, thank you all so much. <laughs>